If you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing on our series, uh, The Upside Down Kingdom, where we're looking at, at least at the beginning, where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm not promising this, but for the most part, we'll probably go in order. And so if you're one of those people who wants to read what, what we're going to be talking about next week, it will be on, on adultery and lust. And so you can be excited about that one. Today we're going to be looking at what Jesus has to say about anger. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, today we are looking at what Jesus says about anger. And this is part of our Upside Down Kingdom series. Last week, we looked at the previous passage where Jesus talks about his relationship to the law and our relationship to the law. And one of the things that we found out in that is that the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' time were looking at the law and they were interpreting the words of the law and arguing over the words of the law. Jesus goes and he interprets the law through the heart of the law. And today we're going to see how he does that with the sixth commandment, thou shall not murder. Before we get into that, I want us just to take a minute and empathize with the religious leaders of the day. Because if you're like me, you can be kind of quick to be like, man, these Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they just always had it wrong. And yet, I think we often jump to how they jump in interpreting the law. For example, this week, as I was doing some study and research on Jesus' teaching here, I was reading a number of different studies and different commentaries and different religious scholars on the topic, and immediately a debate came off the pages. And different scholars would disagree on what classified as killing or as murder. For example, and please do not answer out loud, but I want to give you a list of things that different people may classify as as murder. And think to yourself, which of these is murder and which of these may not be murder? Abortion. Euthanasia. Capital punishment. Death by an accidental car accident. War. When we look at a list like this, I am sure that there is at least maybe one thing on this list that you would say, yes, that is murder. And maybe some things on the list that may seem a little bit more gray, maybe a little bit more ambiguous. I'm not sure how 
should I classify that as murder or not? I know that our legal society doesn't always classify these things as murder. And yet, each of the things on the list has the same end result, the ceasing of a life. Now, something you may or may not know about me, I'm what I, I call a theoretical pacifist. What that means is that I am against war. I would be on the side of the argument that would say that all life is sacred, um, even the life of your enemy or a convicted murderer or a rapist. I don't think that violence actually can stop violence. Um, I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but that's kind of where I would land on the argument. And mainly I'm a theoretical pacifist because I believe that as I understand Jesus' teachings, that Jesus was a pacifist and that that's the way that he wants us to live. And so I have a hard time in believing that, you know, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he means to bomb them. That's just me. However, I also want to let you know, when I say I'm a theoretical pacifist, I'm a theoretical pacifist. In the sense that I myself would be willing to be martyred or willing to be murdered and not fight back. I believe that much. However... I also know myself to know that if someone was trying to hurt or kill my wife or my children, that I would put them down permanently. Because what I believe is good and true, I know I wouldn't always act in that situation. Now, you can agree with me or disagree with me on what circumstances it's permissible to kill someone and which ones it's not. That's not the point. What the point is, is exactly... The thoughts that are going on in your mind, the thoughts that are going on in my mind, and the conversations we might start to have downstairs at coffee hour are exactly what the religious scholars and the Pharisees were all about. Figuring out and defining what murder is, what murder isn't, what killing is, what killing is, what's permissible, what isn't. That's what was going on in the first century. And there were lots of different opinions and theories out there. And Jesus like sweeps over all of them and he says, that's not the point. The point of the law was not to define what murder is and what murder isn't. The point of the law is to go through that to the heart of the law, which is anger. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Just a side note here, Raka seems to have a connotation of offending someone's intellect. And different scholars have a hard time kind of putting that out in a translation. That's why they usually call it just Raka. But you could input that as empty-headed, blockhead, numbskull, bonehead, those kind of things. Whereas the you fool seems to have more of a connotation of insulting someone's character, insulting how someone behaves. Again, not actually really important, but just interesting. Now, in the kingdom of God, the issue isn't about killing someone. In the kingdom of God, Jesus says, the issue here is not what killing is justified and what killing is not, but it's more about our hearts. You can be angry with someone, Jesus says, not physically kill them, and yet it's just as if you did kill them. That's hard, isn't it? Now, I want us to pause for a second and understand not all anger leads to sin. There is something out there called righteous anger. And we know this when we look at another scripture, Ephesians 4, 
4, 26 and 27, Paul says this, In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. And so there seems to be a way to be angry and not sin, according to Paul. And I believe that that's true because in the Old Testament, we hear that God gets angry. He gets angry at sin, at unrighteousness, at oppression, at injustice. Jesus gets angry. He gets angry with the Pharisees for heaping burdens on people and leading them away from the heart of God. We see anger that doesn't necessarily lead to sin. And so anger, I would suggest, is not necessarily good or bad, but how we respond to our anger certainly is. It can either lead you into sin or lead you into righteousness. For example, let me give you an example of this. Anger can be a very good positive power in our lives to move us into the kingdom of God. An example would be, there are lots of people in this congregation who have taken a mission experience to Haiti. And when they come back from Haiti, they talk about the injustice and the oppression and the poverty. We heard that a number of months ago. We heard about about a woman who was dying in a hut from diseases that that there's medicine to, to actually treat. And yet, she was dying because of the poverty and not being able to get those medicine. And so, when you hear those stories, when you experience something like that, I want to tell you, it should make you angry. It should make you angry. That kind of experience, that kind of a thing going on in our world, makes God angry, for sure. And certainly what should make us angry, if we have the heart of God in us. What we do with that anger, either leads us to sin, or leads us into the kingdom of God. And so if, if you had experienced that, and you just fester over that, and you just dwell on that, and you just get angry and angry, and you just think, man, this world is just going so wrong, I'm just so mad at the world, and I'm just going to like blame everyone else for this, that's going to lead you into sin. If you get angry about this, and you say, you know what, there shouldn't be this poverty in the world, and there shouldn't be this injustice in the world, and so I'm going to go out, and I'm going to sponsor a child, and that's going to help at least one kid. Or I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to school and become a nurse. Or I'm going to go to school and become a mechanic. I'm going to go and care for people who need to be cared for. Because I'm going to positively change what's going on in the world. That doesn't lead you into sin. That leads you into action within the kingdom of God. Now, that's righteous anger. There's also Sinful anger. And sinful anger often stems from other sins. Things like jealousy, control, self-protection, pride. Being really clear, pride is the sin that roots most of my anger. When I get angry with Heather or with the kids, it's often based on my own pride. And I'll talk to you more about that in a second. But sinful anger stems often from other sins. When you think, if you actually like took a step back and you thought about the last time you got angry, if it didn't lead to righteous anger, there was probably some sin in your life that made you angry. Now, what does Jesus say about anger? Sorry, how you deal with anger. What does Jesus say about anger? Jesus tells us that we can't dwell on it, that we shouldn't blow it out of proportion, that we don't 
move into gossip, but that we need to forgive and reconcile. And that we need to do that immediately. Now, in the text, Jesus gives us kind of two examples. And they're examples that are kind of within a context that we may not totally understand. So let me recontextualize it for you. If you are in church, in the middle of a service of worship, and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait until the service has ended. Seek out your brother and ask his forgiveness. First go, then come. First go and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your worship to God. Again, if you have an unpaid debt, and your creditor takes you to court to get his money back, come to terms with him quickly. Make a settlement out of court. Even while you are on your way to court, pay your debt. Otherwise, once you reach the court, it will be too late. Your accuser will sue you before the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the police, and you will find yourself in jail. You will never get out until you've paid the last penny, so payment before prison would be much more sensible. Again, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. There is a major sense of urgency. When someone has grieved you, or when you have grieved someone else, and when you are in that anger, you need to deal with that anger. And we'll talk in a minute about some practical implications of how do you deal with that. But let's just understand, from Scripture... Anger is not something that you dwell on. Anger is not something that you allow to fester in your life. Anger is not something that you can deal with the next day. Anger needs to be dealt with immediately. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. i got to tell you, again personally, this has meant sometimes Heather and I have really late nights. And it's a pain in the butt because the longer that we're both up, the more we don't make any sense. And finally we have to go, all right, hold on a second. Let's just think through this and and work towards reconciliation. So I want you to think for a second of a fight you've had with someone or, or someone that you're angry with or have been angry with. What do you do in that situation? How do you work through that anger? How do you work towards forgiveness and reconciliation? Because i got to tell you, that's not easy. And if you've ever tried to work towards forgiveness and reconciliation, it's not always easy. So some practical implications. In your anger, do not sin. It's when you allow your anger to fester that you sin. And so the first thing that we need to do is we need to recognize that the person that we're angry with is a person. Or the circumstance that we're angry with is something in a flawed, sinful world. When we recognize that, We can take the person and we can take the circumstance off of this pedestal that we put it on that said you need to be perfect. The government should answer all of our needs, right? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. That grocery clerk should be absolutely perfect. Uh Uh-uh. Your husband should be absolutely perfect. I'm waiting for Heather to say, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Of course not. And yet we have this tendency to put people on pedestals and expect them to act perfectly. Expect them to act in a way that they would never hurt us. Folks, we live in a flawed world. We live in a sinful world. And most of the people out there have not been reconciled to God, have not 
experienced the Holy Spirit inside of them. And so we should go out expecting to be hurt. We should be going out expecting for people to get angry with us, for people to, to not be forgiving us, all those kind of things. And inside the church, i got to tell you, I'm not perfect. And so if I've offended you, if I've hurt you, I am sorry. And I want to work on that. And yet I, I realize that there are probably people who I could easily hurt because I'm not perfect. And so we need to recognize that the people that we are angry with are flawed people. Maybe some of them are having a bad day. Maybe something. Maybe they're going through a really traumatic experience. Maybe they're, maybe they're simply an allergic personality. You know the people who, like, as soon as they walk in the room, you, you like, start to go, you're just allergic to them. But we need to recognize that they're not perfect. When you recognize that they're not perfect, it's a lot easier to forgive them. Second of all, we need to recognize our own sinfulness. Because we're not perfect. And I want to tell you, 99% of the time, 99% of the time, not 100, but 99% of the time, you are not innocent in the argument or in the circumstance or in the issue that you are angry with in the person, in the relationship that you are angry in. There is that 1%. Some people are just evil. There's that 1% where you are a complete innocent victim. And I want to recognize that. You may have been hurt and been completely innocent. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't forgive. 99% of the time, we have a part in the friction. We have a part to play in the relationship, in the circumstance. If you take the poverty in Haiti as an example, we have a part to play in that. We get to live in a community and in a society and in a culture that completely extorts other cultures and communities for our wealth and for our comfort. We have a part to play in that. And so we need to recognize our own sinfulness and own up to that. i got to tell you, when you do the first part, when you recognize that they're not perfect, and then you do the second part and you recognize that you're not perfect, it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness and to forgive. Number three, pray for the person that you are holding bitterness against. Pray for the person you're holding bitterness against. This is more for the people who are harboring bitterness, who are harboring that lack of forgiveness. Someone has hurt you in the past, and you are just holding them on that. And the hurt could be extraordinary. The hurt could have been traumatizing and excruciating. I get that. But you are holding on to unforgiveness in your heart. You are holding on to bitterness against that person. You just wish that they were dead. You can't stop hating that person. They may now live a thousand kilometers away. They may now be dead. It doesn't matter. You are not ever, ever going to forgive them. That's bitterness, folks. Can I tell you what bitterness does? Bitterness destroys you, not them. 
Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It doesn't work that way. And so if you are harboring bitterness against someone, if there's someone in your life that you are just thinking, no, Brian, I will never, ever forgive that person. They are not worthy of my forgiveness. I want to let you know right now, you are just hurting yourself. And if that's the case, you need to start to pray for them. You need to start to pray for them and pray God's blessing for them. Not because they deserve it, but because they don't deserve it. Pray God's blessing for them. Pray that they would come to know him. Pray for them. And as you do that, God will start to change your heart towards them. There was a woman that I was talking to, I think about a year ago now, who started to do this. She was in a, in a divorce situation. A horrible, horrible divorce. And she probably had every right to never forgive her husband, if you ever have a right about that. She would have had that. But she knew that the bitterness that she was holding was just eating away at her. And so she started saying, okay, I need to pray for this guy. I need to pray for my ex-husband. And she started praying for him. And then she forgave him. And she continues to pray for him. It doesn't matter what is done in his life, but in her life. It's completely transformed how she lives out a day. This is what Jesus invites us to do. Forgive, reconcile, and restore. These are kind of like, and you won't see this in scripture, but these seem to be some of the steps of reconciliation and forgiveness. First one is that we need to forgive. We need to forgive someone. And just so you know, if like, if you're mad at your husband because he left the toothpaste cap off, you can probably get through this quick. Okay? Absolutely. If, if something absolutely horrific has happened to you, you may not get to the third step. I hope you do, but you may not get to the third step. But we can always do the first step. The first step is to forgive. We need to forgive the other person for their hurt. We need to forgive the other person for what they've done to us. And we need to ask for forgiveness for the things that we've done that have hurt them. Forgiveness is that step where you say, you know what? What you did was not okay, but I'm not going to hold that against you. When you take that step and you say, you know what? I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm going to forgive you. The beautiful thing about forgiveness is it doesn't matter how they respond. You don't need them to actually respond to you. If you forgive them, that's an action on your part. Second of all is reconcile. Reconcile is, is when you get back into some sort of a relationship. Again, with a marriage or, or with kids or whatever, that hopefully comes almost instantaneous. Other times... You may get back into a reconciled relationship, but this person has hurt you a lot and you're not going to let them hurt you again. And so it's a relationship, but there's still some trust that still has to be built. Trust needs to be earned back. But you're working on that reconciliation. The third step here is restore. That's when you get back into a relationship that is equal to, may have some different 
ideas in, but is equal to how it was before. So, for example, this week, the hard thing about when you come and speak or, or preach is that sometimes you get a whole lot of examples from your life from that past week. And when it's hot, I get irritated really easily. <laughs> really ir- irritated at my kids. And so, you know, there were situations this week where my kids were just being annoying. And they were just pushing my buttons. And I would get angry at them. And again, this is where it comes back to my own pride and my own issues. Because usually when I got angry at them, there was a whole lot of other behind-the-scenes stuff that I was actually upset about or having to deal with. Nothing to do with them. They were the straw that broke my back. Okay? When I blow up and lose my temper at my kids, I need to do this. I need to ask for forgiveness. Yes, parents, you need to ask for forgiveness from your kids sometimes. In fact, often, if you want them to learn how to ask for forgiveness. And so, I had to ask my kids for forgiveness, and I had to forgive them for what they did to me. We hugged it out. We were back into the restored relationship. I'm not harboring anger at them anymore. It came really simple. For others, I know that this is a hard process, but you need to start with number one. Why do we need to start with number one? Because forgiveness is just so important. And Jesus says, talks about forgiveness all the time in Scripture as super important for us. Matthew 6 says this, And forgive us our debts. This is something that Jesus tells us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Next time you say the Lord's Prayer... Think about that one before you pray it. We're asking God to forgive us in the same way that we forgive others. I don't really want God to forgive me in the same way I forgive others. I want God to forgive me better than I forgive other people. And yet this is the way that Jesus tells us to pray. Jesus tells the story of a man who was forgiven much. He he was forgiven like a million dollars. And then he goes off, the man who was forgiven goes off and like harasses a guy who owes him $5. And the person who had forgiven him the million dollars comes back to him and he says this. It's a master and servant relationship. He says, then the master called the servant and you wicked servant, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. And there's lots in there that we could unpack. But I got to tell you, when I hear that, I go, ooh, this is serious stuff. Most importantly, we need to forgive because God has forgiven us. Luke 7 says this, Therefore I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Friends, we have been forgiven by God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't even ask for it. And we had been forgiven by God. More than that, we've now been reconciled back to him and restored into a relationship with him. If this is how God treats us, then we need to treat 
our neighbors. We need to treat our friends. We need to treat our enemies likewise. Jesus tells us that we need to deal with anger. He tells us we need to deal with this stuff in our lives harshly, immediately, finally. Because when we do, we can live out the kingdom of God. We can live in his kingdom. If we have bitterness and anger and and, and unforgiveness in our lives, we're going to have a really hard time living in the kingdom of God. So I want to invite you right now just to, just to pray. And if the, if the Lord just puts someone on your heart that you need to take these first steps with, I pray that you would do that even today. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. And we just pray right now that you would forgive us from the hurt that we have caused other people. And that you would help us to forgive those who have hurt us. We pray that you would forgive us for holding on to any bitterness or anger. And that today you would help us to make the first step to forgive. And Lord, I I recognize that there are people in this room who have been hurt so deeply, who have been hurt so painfully, so traumatically, that they have sworn that they would never forgive that person. And yet your word tells us we need to. And you tell us that if we want to follow you, this is something that we need to deal with in our lives. And so, Father, right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of that truth. And that you would, even in this moment, help us to forgive. That we would forgive not because we feel like it, not because the emotions are there, but out of obedience to you. And that if we leave here and the emotions come back to us, that we would just take that back to you and say, no, we've forgiven. And so, Father, right now, I just want to pray that that we would forgive those who have hurt us and that we would let go of the revenge, that we would let go of the bitterness, that we would let go of the anger, that we would just embrace your love Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.